One of the most alarming trends we're seeing in teenagers these days is the prevalence of anxiety. If one of your kids or a teenager you know is struggling with anxiety, we are thrilled to share a brand new resource to help. The latest book from Rooted, Anxiety, Finding a Better Story. It's a 31-day devotional for teenagers written by mental health counselor and friend of Rooted, Liz Edrington. As a teenager, Liz felt overwhelmed by anxiety. Now that she's a mental health counselor, she wants to pass on what she's learned. Just understanding what anxiety is makes a big difference. But what makes an even bigger difference is understanding what God has to say about it. With daily scripture readings, breathing exercises, and additional mental health resources, this little book offers you comfort and help in your anxiety. See how your anxiety fits into the big story of your life, and of the whole universe, and learn how Jesus can bring you peace. Order your copy of Anxiety, Finding a Better Story by Liz Edrington wherever you buy books, or purchase through the link in the show notes for this episode. I think someone, you know, when I was talking about trauma, I heard someone say guilt. That wasn't a wrong answer. Guilt can certainly lead to shame, but they're different. Guilt is, I did something wrong. The something wrong is, is out, like the thing that I did. Shame is, I'm bad. Like there's actually something inherent in me that, that is broken and defective. Guilt is actually really good. When we experience guilt, that means that we have a conscience. Welcome to the Rooted Conference podcast. This podcast features main talks and workshops from Rooted's annual conferences. Find more information about our annual conference at rootedministry.com. This talk was recorded at the Rooted 2022 conference in Kansas City. Hey everybody, my name's Chris. Uh, I'll be talking about uh, addiction, uh, namely uh, pornography addiction, trauma, and uh, community. But I, instead of like talking at you, you know, like I don't know, like like a TED talk. I'd like this to be interactive if you guys are open to that. I'd like to talk to you more as fellow professionals, peers, fellow travelers, also fellow parents. Okay, I'll just uh, jump right in. All right, so I don't like public speaking. That's why I put that up there. <laughs> yeah, I'm used to like speaking to, or like in my office, like maybe one, one or two people at a time. This, this isn't so bad, this is okay. And you all look pretty friendly, so I'll, I'll probably be all right up here. So I'm going to start with, with addiction. Um, I'll get into uh, trauma and the importance of community. Um, I'll, I'll also get into some practicals on how to talk to kids about pornography as well. Okay, so addiction. Addiction is, is any repeated uh, behavior. Um, it could be substance-related or not, in which the person feels compelled uh, to continue in, in that behavior regardless of any uh, negative consequences. And then some of the uh, like hallmarks of addiction, compulsion, like, like the need just to, to continue the behavior, preoccupation. So when you're not engaged in the behavior, thinking like just wondering like, all right, when, when can I do this again? Impaired decision-making, persistence in the behavior, uh, relapsing, and really strong cravings. And this is probably one of, one of the best uh, descriptions or, or, or quotes uh, that I found on addiction uh, from Dr. Uh, Gabor Mate. It says, addiction is not the problem. Addiction is the attempt to solve the problem. I'll often ask, like, what, like what's the opposite 
of addiction. And usually I'll hear answers like, you know, freedom, uh, sobriety, and those are all good answers. But really the, the opposite of addiction is, uh, is connection. Here's an, another really good quote here. That addiction isn't so much about the pleasurable effects of the substances, it's about the user's inability to connect in healthy ways. So in other words, addiction, particularly pornography addiction, um, it's, it's more an intimacy disorder than, than anything else. So the relationship between addiction and dopamine, uh, dopamine is essentially the, the building block uh, to addiction. So it's the neurotransmitter that provides that really strong, pleasurable effect that also leaves us with a very quick crash. A lot of people will, will call, call that crash um, a dopamine hangover. The brain will eventually build a tolerance to dopamine, which means that you know, whatever the addiction is, they'll, they'll escalate. They'll either, the intensity of the behavior will increase and or the length of time engaged in that, in that behavior will increase just to get that same, that same high. Okay, so dopamine, as I already mentioned, right, it, it drives like the, the need for, for searching and seeking out rewards. And pornography, like, I think this is astounding and scary at the same time, that it releases more dopamine than any other natural reward. Yeah, it, it provides a very powerful response uh, in the brain. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on neuroscience, and, but just a little bit, so if you bear with me. One of the ways that addiction changes the brain, man, it really wreaks havoc on the, the prefrontal cortex, which is, well, the, that red area you see there. It's like kind of right behind our eyebrows. And the prefrontal cortex is really important because it helps us make good decisions and allows us to have like really good impulse control. And addiction really kind of scrambles that, that part of the brain. So we lose the ability to, to make good decisions uh, to, you know, for, for right judgment and our, our foresight into like what negative consequences could be, you know, if we engage in a certain behavior is, is really compromised. I'm, I'm going to speak briefly about this study that was done in 2014, uh, which was at the Max Planck Institute in Germany. And what they found that people that, that uh, compulsively view pornography, they thought that their reward center in the brain would actually increase in size. They thought it would just get bigger and bigger. It did the exact opposite. It actually shrunk the re reward center and, and the areas of uh, like the judgment centers, which means that person who's, who's engaging those behaviors, they're gonna need more and more and more. And then their judgment is actually getting worse and worse. So pretty scary. And then there's another, another study in, in 2014 that was done at Cambridge and what they did is they, they had two groups, really they had three groups. I'll, I'll tell you about the third group um, in just a minute. So they had healthy volunteers, and, and these were people that were, were not compulsively viewing pornography. And the other group were people that were compulsively viewing pornography. And they ran them through a brain scan while they showed them images of, of sexual material, you know, pornography essentially. And if, if you look, look, the, so that the, the top group of brains, like the reward center, like you can see it lit up a little bit. That's completely normal. But look what, it, look what pornography has done right, to the brain of the person who was 
who's viewing pornography, but it, it, it's, it's lit up like a Christmas tree. So what that tells us is people that are compulsively viewing pornography, they become highly sensitized uh, to sexual stimulus, which means they could just be minding their own business and kind of subconsciously, like their, their brain is scanning for attractive people, right? Or someone that they then find themselves either fantasizing about or sexualizing. And they're like, oh my gosh, like, I can't believe I keep doing this. Like, I don't want to, but it just happens. Does, does that make sense to everybody? Well, then what they did is they, they had a group of, of people uh, that were addicted to uh, cocaine. And they ran them through the same brain scan, but they didn't show them pictures of pornography. They showed them pictures of cocaine or like cocaine uh, paraphernalia or people using cocaine. And they couldn't tell the difference between the compulsive por uh, porn users and the cocaine addicts. It, it essentially did the same thing to their, to their brains. So next, I'm going to get into like, like really like what, what, what is causing, like what causes addiction? If you, for example, break your hip, you'll be taken to a hospital and you'll be given loads of diamorphine for weeks or even months. Diamorphine is heroin. It's in fact much stronger heroin than any addict can get on the street because it's not contaminated by all the stuff drug dealers dilute it with. There are people near you being given loads of deluxe heroin in hospitals right now. So at least some of them should become addicts. But this has been closely studied. It doesn't happen. Your grandmother wasn't turned into a junkie by her hip replacement. Why is that? Our current theory of addiction comes in part from a series of experiments that were carried out earlier in the 20th century. The experiment is simple. You take a rat and put it in a cage with two water bottles. One is just water, the other is water laced with heroin or cocaine. Almost every time you run this experiment, the rat will become obsessed with the drugged water and keep coming back for more and more until it kills itself. But in the 1970s, Bruce Alexander, a professor of psychology, noticed something odd about this experiment. The rat is put in the cage all alone. It has nothing to do but take the drugs. What would happen, he wondered, if we tried this differently? So he built Rat Park, which is basically heaven for rats. It's a lush cage where the rats would have colored balls, tunnels to scamper down, plenty of friends to play with, and they could have loads of sex, everything a rat about town could want and they would have the drugged water and the normal water bottles. But here's the fascinating thing. In Rat Park, rats hardly ever use the drugged water. None of them ever use it compulsively. None of them ever overdose. But maybe this is a quirk of rats, right? Well, helpfully, there was a human experiment along the same lines, the Vietnam War. 20% of American troops in Vietnam were using a lot of heroin. People back home were really panicked because they thought there would be hundreds of thousands of junkies on the streets of the United States when the war was over. But a study followed the soldiers home and found something striking. They didn't go to rehab. They didn't even go into withdrawal. 95% of them just stopped after they got home. If you believe the old theory of addiction, that makes no sense. But if you believe Professor Alexander's theory, it makes perfect sense. Because if you're put into a horrific jungle in a foreign country where you don't want to be, and you could be forced to kill or die at any moment, doing heroin is a great way to spend your time. But if you go back to your nice home with your friends and your family, it's the equivalent of being taken out of that first cage and put into a human rat park. It's not the chemicals, it's your cage. We need to think about addiction differently. Human beings have an innate need to bond and connect. 
When we are happy and healthy, we will bond with the people around us. But when we can't, because we're traumatized, isolated or beaten down by life, we will bond with something that gives us some sense of relief. It might be endlessly checking a smartphone, it might be pornography, video games, Reddit, gambling, or it might be cocaine. But we will bond with something because that is our human nature. The path out of unhealthy bonds is to form healthy bonds, to be connected to people you want to be present with. Addiction is just one symptom of the crisis of disconnection that's happening all around us. We all feel it. Since the 1950s, the average number of close friends an American has has been steadily declining. At the same time, the amount of floor space in their homes has been steadily increasing. To choose floor space over friends, to choose stuff over connection. The war on drugs we've been fighting for almost a century now has made everything worse. Instead of helping people heal and getting their life together, we have cast them out from society. We have made it harder for them to get jobs and become stable. We take benefits and support away from them if we catch them with drugs. We throw them in prison cells, which are literally cages. We put people who are not well in a situation that makes them feel worse and hate them for not recovering. For too long, we've talked only about individual recovery from addiction. But we need now to talk about social recovery, because something has gone wrong with us as a group. We have to build a society that looks a lot more like Rat Park and a lot less like those isolated cages. We are going to have to change the unnatural way we live and rediscover each other. The opposite of addiction is not sobriety. The opposite of addiction is connection. So before I continue, I'm curious if, if any of you have any thoughts or, or, or feedback on, on that video. The thing that I was thinking of um, was just kind of wondering the connection because the opioid epidemic has, there's, there's a, a huge history of especially blue collar workers and the interim job going to the doctor and then getting uh, opioids and then getting hooked up from that. Mm -hmm. So I'm just kind of like wondering the connection and maybe that's more indicative of the society still, then the chemical bonus wondering still is like, yeah. <laughs> it, it does make sense, yeah. And, and what it seems to me is it, it speaks to the number of people out there that are really hurting, you know, that, that are needing something to, to, numb, to numb their pain uh, because they're, they're not getting their needs met uh, in, in, in healthier ways. I know that's a really short answer to it. I mean, that, that was a probably spent hours on that question. But I hope that helps. Yeah. I'm just, I'm curious because, like, I work with high schoolers, um, and I know there's, you know, hormones are raging, puberty's happening, and all of that. Yes. And so they'll use porn. And so I, I'm just wondering, at what point, or are there any helpful, like, guidelines or principles you use to, like, when do we use language of sin and repentance? To address porn and when do we use language of addiction and connection? Mm -hmm. oh, awesome. Okay. I will be covering that a little later, but I kind of want to address that now. Like that's a really good question. So you said sin and like sin and repentance and then addiction and connection. I could see how you could use all four of those possibly in in the same conversation. And I think it's important to note that okay, someone may have or be engaging in what I would call like un unhealthy sexual behaviors. That doesn't mean necessarily that they're addicted, but they could be, right? And I think we can all agree that if someone is 
engage in un unhealthy sexual behaviors, that's going to come with its, a lot of negative consequences, right? Shame, if someone is already viewing pornography, most likely shame has already entered their story. And so if it's a matter of sin, like, come on, like, you, you can't be doing this, right? This, this, is, this, is, this is sinful. I'm not necessarily going to disagree with that. But if that, if that person is, is struggling with an addiction, number one, they probably are wanting to stop and can't without further help and support. And so that, so if that's where the conversation would stop is just with, with like, come on, like you can't be doing this. Like this is, right, you're, you're sinning, right? That's probably going to increase their shame and drive that behavior further underground. Again, that doesn't mean that that conversation can't be had. One of the best questions to ask is, okay, so before you look at pornography, what, what's going on? Like, what happened that led you there in the first place? And for high schoolers, my, my oldest two kids are, are in high school. So first of all, thank you for the work you're doing. So imagine a kid comes home after school, 2.30, 3.30. Maybe one parent is home. Maybe both are. Maybe they come home to an empty house, right? Let's say they, they just had a really crappy day at school. Got some tests back that they didn't score too well on. Maybe, maybe had a fight with one of their friends or what have you. And they're just like kind of lonely. And so they pull out their phone, maybe get on Instagram. Or, I don't know if high schoolers do, do Facebook or, or, or probably, yeah, no. Snapchat, right? Like how many likes or how many followers, right? Oh, oh no, I, I didn't get any. Like, oh gosh, like now I'm feeling worse. And they're, uh, they're scrolling and maybe they find something that kind of catches their eye on Instagram, let's say. And maybe it's not pornography per se, but it's kind of getting, getting things moving, right? And it's not that, that long afterwards that they're probably going to end up acting out. And so it wasn't like, like okay, you got to stop doing this. It's like, oh, you were hurting. You were having a really rough time and you're kind of left alone in it, right? So now I think it's more of a question like, like calling that, that period of time when they come home a vulnerable time. So like, what are some ways they can spend their time that they're not by themselves? Like maybe they see if, if they can you know, go, go, to, uh, go to a friend's house where hopefully that there's some adult supervision, things like that. Okay, so trauma. I believe that trauma really is, the, is one of the driving factors in addiction. When you guys hear the word trauma, like what are some other words that, that come to mind? Pain? Yeah. Abuse? Yes. Anxiety? Yeah. Suffering? Yeah. Lonely? Gosh, all those are really good. Yeah, those are all really good. So trauma is really not the thing that happens, right? It's what happens to us inside as a result of what happened. I know that can sound like maybe a little confusing at first, but there, there's, there's two types of trauma. There's trauma with a big T, and, and those are the, the types of traumas that most of us uh, probably think of when, when we hear that word trauma. Uh, so, you know, a violation of someone's uh, sexual integrity. And a violation of someone's sexual integrity could actually be the, their, their first exposure to pornography. Because typically, like when I ask my clients, like, how old were you when you were first exposed? Oh, I was probably, like, you know, eight years old. And who did you tell afterwards? What do you think is the, the most common answer? No one. Yeah. So they're left alone to figure this out. Right. Now it's, now it's trauma. Like first it was, okay, this should have never happened in the first place. 
but now trauma has set in because they were left alone and, and trying to figure out like, first of all, what in the world is this? And what are all these feelings that just happened to me all at once? So of course, you know, physical abuse, uh, combat, or a situation that's, that's coupled with, with intense uh, fear and uh, helplessness or, or a sense of uh, powerlessness. But then you have uh, trauma with a little t. And in many ways, this type of trauma is, it's not that it's worse, it's, it's different in that a lot of folks don't even really see things like this as even issues, much less uh, trauma. And so that could be growing up in a home with, with critical parents, right? Maybe you come home from school and you got an A on your test, right? You got a 98% and you're excited. You want to show mom and dad. And they say, hmm, what happened to that 2%? I'm like, oh, right? Now, now that happening once, that, that's not an issue. But if, if, that's, if that's the pattern of relating, right, if that's the the flavor in the water, as it were, yeah, that, that's going to lead to all sorts of negative consequences. Uh, emotional neglect, having parents that are, that are disengaged, or dynamics that, that are either rigid or chaotic, or sometimes a little bit of both. Uh, but that last one with, with, with the quota, uh, quotation marks, it's when there's this pattern of uh, feeling uh, that we're not seen or known. Has anyone here seen the, the still face experiment? I'm seeing some nods. Okay. Yeah. I've lost track of how many times I've seen it. it it's still tough to, to watch. Babies this young are extremely responsive to the emotions and the reactivity and the social interaction that they get from the world around them. This is something that we started studying Oh, 30, 40 years ago, when people didn't think that infants could engage in social interaction. In this still face experiment, what the mother did was she sits down and she's playing with her baby who's about a year of age. I'm like a girl. And she gives a greeting to the baby, the baby gives a greeting back to her. This baby starts pointing at different places in the world and the mother's trying to engage her and play with her. They're working to coordinate their emotions and their intentions, what they want to do in the world. And that's really what the baby is used to. And then we ask the mother to not respond to the baby. The baby very quickly picks up on this. And then she uses all of her abilities to try and get the mother back. She smiles at the mother. She points because she's used to the mother looking where she points. The baby puts both hands up in front of her and says, what's happening here? She makes that screechy sound at the mother, like, Come on, why aren't we doing this? Even in this two minutes when they don't get the normal reaction, they react with negative emotions, they turn away, they feel the stress of it, they actually may lose control of their posture because of the stress that they're experiencing. 
It's a little like the good, the bad, and the ugly. The good is that normal stuff that goes on, that we all do with our kids. The bad is when something bad happens, but the infant can overcome it. After all, when you stop the still face, the mother and the baby start to play again. The ugly is when you don't give the child any chance to get back to the good there's no reparation, and they're stuck in that really ugly situation. Any thoughts or, or, or feedback, or, or maybe like what, uh, like maybe what you were feeling as, as you were watching this? It is hard, yeah. I'm often asked like, oh my gosh, like, was that baby traumatized? Most likely not. Did you see how quickly she she reengaged when the when the mom like came back? Yeah. So that would have been like a stressful um, experience for her, but not traumatic. Now, it would be, you know, a little t trauma if that was continually how the mom engaged without without the repair, right? So that rupture. That's a given, right? In, in any relationship, we're going to have those missteps or, or misunderstandings or, or what have you, just because we're, we're human and we make mistakes. But when there's a lack of repair or if repair doesn't happen or it doesn't happen quickly enough, that, that's where, we're, uh, where, where we can get wounded. Does that make sense? I mean, they could have done the same experiment and just had the mom on her phone. How does this change from, you know, infant to three through six or whatever that next development? Oh, it doesn't. Yeah, it doesn't matter if you're uh, one one years old or a hundred and and one, right? That that lack of reciprocity, like that 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 back and forth, our nervous system registers that as okay. This, I don't know what just happened, but there's been the severing of connection, and I'm no longer safe. Right? Even though no one's like screaming or yelling at me, I've had some people say I would much, much rather my parents yelled at me than gave me the silent treatment. That, that, that was an excellent question. So if this type of dynamic is more the, the norm in the home, then these lies start setting in, right? I mean, it doesn't really take a lot of mental gymnastics to go from, well, it really doesn't seem like my feelings matter. It probably means that I don't matter. Or when we're hurt in the context of relationships, right, our nervous system is not going to let us forget that, right? So instead of waiting to be rejected, maybe I'll be the one to make the first offensive move, right? That way I can't get hurt. What is that? Uh, do one to others before they do one to you, right? Something like that. Have you heard that? You know, I'm not enough. Or I'm loved when I'm good but I'm not loved when I'm bad. Or at least I'm not yelled at when I get good grades. Especially with, with pornography or, or other unwanted sexual behavior, I, I'm dirty. There's something, this is a big one, there's something wrong with me. You know, I'll, I'll, I think one of the cruelest questions we can ask ourselves is, what's wrong with me? 
or even like word, like what's wrong with you? But it presupposes that something is wrong. I just don't know what it is, right? Why do I keep looking at this stuff? It's probably because there's something wrong with me. Does it make sense to everybody? Are you saying like, because there is something wrong if you're looking at porn? There's something wrong, yes. But like, is like the issue is that with me? Like saying like, I'm the problem? Yes. Is that what you would say? Yes. Is the issue with that? Mm-hmm. But you're right. Yeah, there's something like, gosh, like if, if someone is, is engaging in any unhealthy behavior or, or, or substance, yeah, that points to like, okay, something is not right here. But when the person who's engaged in these things is left alone to figure it out, well, well, it's me. There's something wrong with me. Where someone else can come in and say, well, no, you're right. There is something wrong. It's not you. Maybe the something wrong happened way back here. And this, this was your way of trying to deal with it on your own. So we need to figure this out together, right? So what's wrong with me? Like that, that's, that's shame. I think someone, you know, when I was talking about trauma, I heard someone say guilt. That wasn't a wrong answer. Guilt can certainly lead to shame, but they're different. Guilt is I did something wrong, right? The something wrong is, is out, like the thing that I did, right? Shame is like, I'm bad. Like there's actually something inherent in me that, that is broken and defective, right? And, and guilt is actually really good. Uh, when we experience guilt, that means that we have a conscience, right? Like, oh gosh, like this choice I made was not in line with my morals and my faith. I need to repent, right? Guilt prompts us forward to, to make those repairs and to say, oh my gosh, I should not have said what I said that was really hurtful, right? Like, are we good? Do forgive me, right? And then hopefully we learn and grow from, from that. Shame does the exact opposite, right? It isolates. Yes, I made this choice. Uh, it, it was a bad choice. Well, that's because I'm bad. And you're probably not going to forgive me anyway. So... I'm, I'm not going to engage. Does that feel familiar? I'm just going to share just a, a quick story, if that's okay. That, that kind of helps, uh, yeah, maybe help help make sense of this a little bit. So as a kid, I really had a hard time uh, being organized and and keeping things organized. Uh, do you remember those uh, those flip top desks in school, and you keep all your books and, and supplies in there? So when I was in third grade, you could always pick out where my desk was because there's like usually like like crumpled up pieces of paper just like a bunch of crap kind of hanging out <laughs> hanging out the sides um, and we were always we, we would clean our desks usually on Friday afternoons that way on Monday like everything is you can find everything so I imagine this was probably midweek and I, I can't remember what the subject was but the teacher said you know get out your books oh man it's got, it's got to be in here somewhere right and she caught sight of the, uh, disaster that was my desk and she was a huge woman just like kind of lumbered up to me and like in third grade like we're, we're pretty short anyway right so any adults gonna look big she picked up my desk and dumped it yeah and I thought well I guess I'll never get it together right because that was the like I already had trouble like I knew that well well here's more evidence Right, and not only that, it was an adult, right? So an authority figure. 
basically said, yeah, you're a mess, right? And so I, I, would, I believed that for a long time. But it wasn't until I, I brought this to my therapist and like she spoke into that story and she said, wow, there is no excuse for how this teacher treated you, right? No adult should treat a kid this way. Now, I went to therapy as an adult, pointing that out to me like that wasn't, well, that's really pretty obvious, right? But it took someone else speaking into my story, right? Does that make sense? So her truth like blew up those lies. You guys know Brene Brown? Yeah, she, she's awesome. So she says that shame is the feeling or the experience of believing that we're, we're so flawed that we're unworthy of connection. It's also the fear of, of disconnection. And shame can also be the source of, of hurtful behavior. I think most of us get that after someone looks at pornography, they're going to be experiencing some shame. But shame is often actually the, the main driver in looking at pornography. Right? So if I, if I already just kind of take it as a fact that I'm unworthy of connection, there's something wrong with me, I'm dirty, well, mine as well. Right? Like, it, it fits, doesn't it? Any uh, people that know uh, Dr. Kurt Thompson? Yeah? Okay. He's one of my favorites. Uh, so he says that one of shame's primary neurolog neurological functions is creating isolation. Right? I don't tell anybody. Right? I'm left in my own head. And I can't afford to be left in my own head. Right? And those of you that know Kurt Thompson, he's, right, he's a man of faith. He, he's, he's a Christian, a psychiatrist by trade. And he says, if, right, if we don't have people in our lives, right, there's no amount of scripture or prayer that's, that, that can be that substitute for, for our friends coming to find us. Okay, so the remedy to shame is, is we, we have to share our stories. And I guess what I didn't ask earlier, uh, are you all youth ministers? Show of hands. Most of, okay, awesome. So, uh, and I would say this as, as parents also, if, if we're going to walk along teens, whether they're our kids or, or whether they're kids that we're, we're serving and, and supporting uh, through, you know, as youth ministers, we're going to be much, much more equipped to walk along alongside them once we've done our own work. And if, and if we have, you know, any issues, could be current, it could be way in the past, but unless we've done that first, shame is going to enter that conversation whether we want, want it to or not. You guys know all this. Like, we're, we're, we're hardwired for connection, right? Like, we're created this way. Let us make human beings in our image. Like, like what's that the language of? Us and our. Community. Yeah, relationship. Right? So from the very beginning, right, it is not good for man to be alone. And one of the things that pornography does so well is it, it isolates, right? Uh, I mean, there could be a group of people that maybe have an unhealthy relationship with alcohol, but there they are engaging it together, right? Not so with pornography. Yeah, you're by yourself. Yeah. So when we share our story, like we're, we're, we're putting ourselves in the position to be, to be known. And not just to be known, but to 
to, to really know how to really know others also. Another great, uh, great quote from, from Kurt, it's only through this process of being known that you get to know yourself and learn how to know others. Right? To be known means that you allow your shame and guilt to be exposed in order for them to be healed. Now, that's easy to say out loud. But to actually like, all right, I'm, I'm going to go there. That can be really scary. It takes a lot of courage. Any uh, Lord of the Rings fans? Yeah? Awesome. As a group, like, th these guys were a mess. Right? You, you had, you know, the... The dwarf, uh, right? The, the the four hobbits, like the arguments, right? The the not getting along, you know, lots of disagreements. But that didn't stop them from, well, repenting and, and forgiving when when necessary, right? So, in healthy communities, right, there there is going to be that those relational struggles. I was going to say like, well, that's okay. Well. Whether it's okay or not, like that just, right, that's just how it is, right? Some of the hallmarks of healthy communities where there's uh, structure and accountability, uh, like I'm thinking like youth group, right? I imagine that in your respective youth groups that it's on the same time, same day, every single week. Where like, when's youth group this week? Don't know. Well, no, that, it's Sunday at 7, right? It's going to also be at next Sunday at 7, right? So it's predictable. There's, there's structure. And, and those, like those places need to be places where, where my story is welcome and so is everybody else's. And that's really how we learn, where we learn empathy and, and curiosity, right? Instead of like, oh my gosh, why did you do that? Like, oh, that just brought up my shame. I, I really don't want to tell you now, right? Instead of, hmm, all right, so you said you looked at pornography this week, yeah. What was your day like leading up to that? What was going on with you? Oh, kind of feels like you're trying to connect with me now, right? And, and also just discovering purpose and, and living for a bigger story. So I, so I referenced uh, a book called Unwanted by Jay Stringer. Are, are any of you familiar with it? Yeah? Okay, good. For those of you that, that may not be, this is what it looks like. It is so good. And one of the things that he, amongst other things, he comments on is like in an accountability setting, if we're only focused on, did you look at pornography or not? Okay, yes, that, that, that does need, need to be a piece of that conversation. But if that's the whole, like if, that's, if that is the conversation, eventually that's gonna, that's gonna feel very shaming. Even the person who's trying to be helpful isn't intending to shame that, that person. I think we need to know like who like like who is your cloud of witnesses. Now, are are all of you from Kansas City? Well, that doesn't stop you from being right in each other's cloud of witnesses. Uh, but this is so cool. Like it, uh, it says, therefore, since we're surrounded by by so great a cloud of witnesses, right? Let us rid ourselves of every burden and sin, right? Like it sounds like accountability to me, right? And, and it says the sin that clings to us. Like, I don't want this. Like, get it off me, right? Versus like, oh, man, like, why do you keep doing that, right? And persevere in running the race while we keep our eyes fixed on, on Jesus, right? Finally, we can get some, some practical steps here. 
So th this is, you know, s some ideas for, for conversations with, for parents to have. Uh, now, not being a youth minister, it seems that, like, I like that second one. Like, hey, I read an article today. You know, that kids are seeing pornography at really young ages. You know, I'm wondering if, if some of you have, have come upon this, right? And, and I like the way the third one is framed is, this is probably gonna be an awkward topic. And to even say, you know, it's, it's going to be kind of awkward for me too. That can, I think that can be very disarming uh, to that child to know that, oh, okay, so you, this is kind of awkward for you too. Awesome. All right, so we're in this together. <laughs> right? Yeah. Okay, so this, this is a list of what I call uh, recovery capital. Now, this is more like, like in the language of recovery, like what are you doing to like live out recovery? Like what are you, what are you replacing your addictive behaviors with, right? But you know, when I look at this list, I think, gosh, all of us could, like we're all gonna be healthier if, if we live some of these things out, right? You know, learning something new, hobbies, whether someone is, is struggling with a particular addiction or not, just being accountable to their brothers, to their sisters. Any questions or, or, or comments? Yeah. That's a really good question. So there, there seems to be this, like two extremes, either like feeling just um, like shameful or shameless. I remember one, one of my kid's friends said something like, he kind of implied that, well, when we're bored, well, you just go look at pornography. That's what you do. Like, that's just, that's the thing. It's almost like you're kind of weird if you don't do that. Like, I would call that sh like shameless. So there could be that, uh, well, it's everywhere. Like, of course everyone's looking at it. So I'm probably not that bad if I am. Does that make sense? But it's still, like when we're bored, you guys know all this, like there, there's so many other, an infinite number of, of ways to satisfy that boredom that are, that are healthy. Like get outside, work out. Yes. Now, I wish that was more common for these young people. Right, texting and, but you're right. There's so much missing. Renee Brown speaks to this. Like, like you text someone, and you get the, you get the three dots. Like, oh, oh, hey, hey, wait a minute. Where did they go? What did I do? Right. Well, that's the still face experiment. Like, there's no reciprocity. Right. I might have something really important to say to you, over text, and if you don't respond for another three hours, I might be losing my mind for three hours because I'm needing that connection. I don't know how it got on that. I don't know if I answered your question. Maybe along the same lines, but not with pornography, but with, uh, we have a lot of high school boys dealing with video game addiction. Oh my, yeah. And just, if you could just speak to that for a minute, because that does have a communal aspect. I was just on an airplane and the guy next to me was visiting someone, he's from Canada, He's been visiting someone for the first time he's been gaming with since he was eight years old. Okay, so I'd say at least, you know, at eight years old, maybe they didn't have, like there was really no way for them to actually connect, right? Well, 
some sort of relationship developed where that, that they thought, well, now we can finally meet each other in person. That, that's kind of cool. But if it's just like hours upon hours, yeah. right? Uh, if I had to pick, you know, someone is uh, gaming solo you know, by themselves or, or online where, where there's, you know, they got their headphones and microphone and all that. I would, I would prefer that. At least there's some interaction. But there has to, there, we're made for face-to-face -face interactions. So if that's the only thing they're doing to connect, like, okay, something is, something's wrong there, right? If it's something they do, I don't know, an hour here, a couple hours there, because they they enjoy it, and it's not interfering with either their their development as a human being or, or school or work, it's probably okay. Uh, but there is this false sense of, of conquering something. Like, I got to the next level, right? But really, what did you actually accomplish? There's dopamine hits going on there, too. 100%. Yeah. Because, uh, you know, like making a, uh, like a checklist of, of, of tasks, Right? You're like, all right, whatever the task is, probably something I didn't want to do, but I did it and I checked it off. Boom, a little bit, little bit of dopamine. That's going to give me enough motivation to do the next thing I really don't want to do. So, but that's using it right to our advantage. Yeah, awesome question. Yeah. I have a question about nicotine. Yeah. It's a lot more accessible now for like high schoolers. Oh, like vaping and. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, like, how would we approach that? Like, they wouldn't ever do it in front of us because, like, we're obviously a church and stuff. But, like, they, we do know, like, what if you do know, like, that they do it outside and, like, all their friends do it as well, you know? So mm -hmm. it's, like, kind of like, oh, if you're doing it, I'm going to do it. Or, like, yeah, yeah, it's like the cool factor. Yeah. Right? So, like, how do we approach that because it's so, like, accessible to them? Like, yeah. I mean, you can let them know that, you know, a lot of kids do this. I mean, clearly, I mean, I can hear your, just the concern in your voice that, it, I mean, it's, it's, well, it's horribly unhealthy. You know, can, I, I don't know what all the ramifications are, but I know they're, they're not good ones. Uh, it seems, okay, so if I had a big rope up here with a sign that said, don't pull this. <laughs> right? Yeah. Now, maybe you actually don't pull it, but you, you might kind of want to. Right? Our brain doesn't really do well with don't do that, mm -hmm. right? We need like, we'll do this, right? So if there can be a, a, an alternative, our brains respond so much better to, hey, let's check this out versus stop doing this. And, and, and if you haven't done it, don't. But oh, well now, now I kind of want to go check that out. Other, yeah. So from what I'm hearing, correct me if I'm wrong, is that a lot of the addiction behaviors, whether it's pornography or gaming, is coming from a root of trying to uh, escape or heal that wound, from what I'm hearing. Absolutely. And it also from what I'm hearing is that everyone has a little teeth trauma, right? Yes. But the, so, okay, so what is the balance? If, if that's the reality in life, that everyone has a little teeth trauma, right? I'm assuming, what are some ways for those who are addicted, to kind of help them to let them know there's other ways of um, healing. There's other yeah. ways to escape, healthier ways to escape. 
Okay, so I th there, there's a difference, I think, be between escaping from and escaping to. You know, I know uh, any Marvel fans, yeah, like those are just cool movies. Now, if you don't like them, that, that's, that's okay. But I, th I think they're kind of cool movies. Now, if, if you're thinking, well, I'm going to escape to. Like, I just want to watch this movie, kind of forget about whatever. But, it, but as soon as the movie's over, all right, like I'm back, like I'm fully present to engage whatever is going on in my life, right? Now, escaping from, like especially if you're like streaming it, like, oh, well, all right, well, I want to watch the next one too, like right now, right? And maybe the next one after that, where it's complete avoidance. So I think there, I guess I, I could have made that a lot uh, shorter, just said moderation, right? Uh, but if you're trying to, 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 to uh, like to help them see that, okay, what you're doing is really unhealthy, it, right? You're, you're hurting yourself and maybe indirectly it's hurtful to others. Maybe not so much focusing on like whatever the escaping activity is, but like, what are you escaping from? What is so painful that you're resorting to this to feel better? Yeah. I have kind of a question really off of that. So I don't know how a lot of these groups are saying, but ours is like a talk from up front, and then they split off into small group times. Um, and I would just be not worried, but that I would push kids further into shame by being like, this is like, chances are they're looking at porn, like they're already feeling guilty, like you said. So how do we stop mm. that transition from like guilt to shame? How do yep. we intervene with connection from mm -hmm. up front? So yes. That, like small group could potentially be a place where they're feeling willing and open to talk about it. Yes. Uh, and not necessarily pushing them further into shame from up front. Because you want to address the reality and the detriments of sin. Like you don't want to gloss over that, but you do also want to, again, push kids to connection rather than isolation. Yes. Okay. So I'm trying to think. So I, I've talked with youth groups before, but I've, I've also talked like, like to high schoolers. Uh, you know, about pornography. And one of the things I'll start off with is if you've seen pornography or if you're in a pattern of like currently looking at it, there's nothing wrong with you. And hearing that, I think from an adult, first of all, I, I believe that it's 100% true that there's nothing wrong with someone. There's something wrong in their life that's leading them to look at it, right? So starting there, I've also been in environments where a youth minister will you know, to the, to the degree that it's appropriate, has said, hey, I've been there. I've been where you are. And there is a way out. You're not a bad person. Does, does that help? Yeah. Kind of like open a door for connections. Yeah. yeah. Like that, that sense of, oh, they get. Mm -hmm. Like they're, like we're in this together here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Please. Uh, would it be a good idea, say, if you have a student come tell you that they're going through the issue of pornography, to say, hey, thank you for telling me I'm proud of you? Yes. Yeah. Okay. Like, yeah, that took a lot of courage. Thank you. Yeah. Perfect. Um, how do we, like, as students, like, 
confide in us about like their addictions and like struggles. How do we help parents to disciple them well through that without like compromising the students like trust and telling us that? That's a tough one. I mean, I think it, it, it'd be a, a pretty easy decision if they come to you and right there, there's, you know, thoughts of like self-harm, right? We're like, that's kind of a no-brainer, right? But with this, yeah, I might have a conversation or maybe part of that conversation with that student is, you know, what kind of help are you getting? Have you told your parents that you're having a hard time with this? And, you know, it could be like, well, no, and I'm, I'm like, I'm really afraid to tell them. Well, what if we tell them together? What do you think about that? And Yeah, just, just an idea. Uh, all right, I'm going to be try to be uh, quick here. So uh, accountability, it really needs to be need, needs-focused, where, where the goal is, like, bringing that kid out of isolation, helping him or her right, build uh, healthy relationships and focusing on, on meeting their needs versus uh, a punishment. Now that doesn't mean there can't be consequences, right? Like, you know what? I think we need to take off some of your social media apps. Oh, absolutely. Yes. So, you know what? You give me your phone for a couple days so I can spend some time locking some things down. Right, where it's not necessarily you're grounded from your phone, but we need to, you know, put some better barriers here, right? And those needs, there, there's a excellent book by Mark Laser, Seven Desires, and these are desires that that all of us have. Oh, all right, looks like I have eight. I put uh, to be safe on there twice, but it's important to be safe, so we'll put. The, why not? But to be uh, <laughs> to be heard and understood, to be affirmed, uh, to be blessed. And just quickly, just to differentiate between those two, to be affirmed, it's like, hey, uh, man, you killed it out there at the at your baseball game, right? Like you, uh, great home run, right? So where you're focusing on, on a behavior, where being blessed is kind of back to that sports analogy. Maybe they had a horrible game, but you're like, you know, all right, yeah, that was a rough game, but I'm just happy you're my son. I'm just happy you're my daughter. Like I saw how, how like how hard you were you were trying out there, right? So where their value isn't external, like it's just you're affirming them as a as a person. I already I already covered to be safe, uh, to be touched, uh, to be chosen, and to be invited. But usually, when when really any of us are behaving in ways that are less than healthy, if we take a step back and think, all right, out of these seven. What was missing for me? If you love the conversations we're having here on this podcast, we hope you'll join us in person this November at the Rooted 2023 conference in Nashville, Tennessee. It's a full three days of a family-like setting where you'll worship, fellowship, and be equipped and encouraged for another year of ministry. We'll have main session speakers, including Daniel Yang, Trillian Newbell, and Kelly Capick. 20 fantastic workshops from pastors, theologians, counselors like Mike McGarry and Sissy Goff, and music led by Sandra McCracken, the Lipscomb University Gospel Choir, and more. 
Join us today at rootedministry.com conference or click the link in the show notes. Don't forget to sign up before September 15th before prices increase. Again, that's rootedministry.com conference.